Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome in, everybody. Enjoy alongside my good friend, James Bench, who is live in London. Keiko Lazzo begins right now. James Bench, you're live at Wembley Stadium. Let's talk about that thriller you just witnessed. What a fantastic game that was. Tell me all about it. How was the feeling and the atmosphere in the stadium? Oh, it, was, it was absolutely baffling because, I mean, I'm pretty certain some people left after that second, uh, that wonderful guy, Havertz, goal went in and long. You couldn't blame them because England were atrocious. Um, really fell apart. Particularly, I think mean, they were okay. There were moments before the first goal, but heads went heads went uniformly. And then um, Mason Mount, and in particular, I thought Bukayo Saka came on and changed the tenor of the game. Just played a sort of football with a pace and a verve that we haven't seen from England in months. I mean, I think you maybe have to go back to the quarterfinals of the Euros, and I think you kind of can't forget everything that happened over the 70 minutes before and, and the five games before that. But um, it's certainly like, I think what really mattered was changing the atmosphere, changing the conversation about England and Saka and Mank, they did that. It's not crisis point anymore. And I think that's important going into the World Cup, but like, there are a lot of problems. So uh, we'll see We'll see how many of them can be resolved with no more games, but at least the atmosphere is a little different. Well, it's great to have you at Wembley Stadium, obviously, here with Keiko Lazzo, James Benji, Ian Joy, Nigel Rio Coker is joining us in just a moment. In fact, I think he's almost ready to join us right about now. So when you're ready, Nigel, join the show. But James, I just want to touch upon the fact that I know Nigel's got a smile on his face, but what was the reaction? What was everybody whispering inside the media center? Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, there are a lot of us, like myself, having to furiously rewrite our pieces quite significantly because as I said you know I, I felt like a lot changed just from that passage of play even if Havertz managed to, to equalize for Germany it the sort of tone the tempo of of um of the whole experience changed so I, I, you know I think there were an awful lot of people kind of talking about well focusing on that and then I think there's a really a sense of what does this all mean for that starting 11 against Iran and against the US um in a, in, a, in a few weeks' time, you know, Saka and, and Mank will feel like they've played themselves into contention. Harry Maguire, though, definitely played himself out of contention. And I think he is still as much a point as those that turn the game off the bench. James, do you feel that the way that England set up in that first half, they set up as a sense of, we're not going to lose this game? It was a setup of, we're not going to lose, but we're not showing no intentions to win. You know, if we try and play on the counter attacking, football that might we might get a break here or there Raheem Stone had some good chances they should have put in the back of the net do you not feel being at the stadium you watch that game you look at the proactivity of the German side very static in the first half lots of possession around the edge of the box no willing runners to go in behind introduction of Timo Werner in the second half to change the dynamic do you not feel Gareth Southgate should have started with Saka and Mount from the start 
and play as they did in the second half. A bit more adventurous, a bit more willing to get forward and just showing ambition to win that game. I think the funny thing, I mean, I completely agree with everything. I completely agree with everything you said there, Nigel. I suppose the funny thing that I keep coming back to is this isn't that dissimilar to how England won a lot of games at, at tournaments before. You know, they trusted in their defence that the defence could keep it tight and then that Raheem Sterling would nick a goal at the other end. And, you know, if that early chance, a brilliant pass by Luke Shaw, if that early chance had gone in, we might have been talking about the whole game very differently. It's equally, though, I, I agree with you that it's the difference between sort of even Euro 2020, but especially the 2018 World Cup, and now is England do have the players to just rip a team to shreds like they did. I mean, what Saka and Hank did, there aren't a lot of teams in, in world football that can do that. And I think when you see that, you think there's definitely a balance to be struck where you can keep that system. I think you need to change some of the players in the system. But just put put Saka in there in the position he's best at rather than Foden somewhere awkwardly. And just try and be a little bit more front-footed. Get, give Bellingham and Rice the ball. Get it out from get it out from the back quicker. That means dropping Maguire. mean Pickford or Ramsdale, not Pope. Um but yeah, no, I do, I do completely agree with everything you said, Nigel. And hopefully, Southgate will take those lessons on board. You're watching Keiko Lazzo live. It's Ian Joy with Nigel Rio Coker, and we have James Bench live from Wembley Stadium in London with us right now. James, before we let you go, because I know it's getting late over there, I have to ask you about the era that created the third goal for Germany. I mean, England, it was a terrific comeback. And realistically, they should have locked up that game, but it's an error that's cost them. What was it like inside the stadium? Was it complete frustration? Did it just like flatten the energy and the atmosphere inside that stadium once Nick Pope had made that mistake? Not necessarily. And I think one of the strange things is I think everyone sort of thought it was offside, and obviously it wasn't. But I didn't, I mean, as, as I was saying at the, the top, a lot, a lot of the people that were more frustrated had already left, I think. Um, so I, I didn't really get the sense it, it killed that much. And I think there's also that sort of looking at it. I don't, I don't know how much fans are doing this in the moment, but you're kind of looking at it going, well, you know, Nick Pope's not going to be the one that we have to worry about come the World Cup. So I don't get the sense it spoiled too much. I think it also helped that England, even after that goal, were trying more. Bellingham got into the box. What a player G. Bellingham is. Saka uh, nearly scored as well. Like, I think the happiness to see England cut loose kind of outweighed the frustration at Havertz's goal. We're going to let you go, James. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming it's to us live. <laughs> Listen, we I'm wanted surprised. to keep you longer. <laughs> Ian, you surprised he ain't got his tablecloth on, a thicker version of the tablecloth. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Looking good, James Bench. Hey, listen, thank you so much for joining us live here. It's absolutely awesome. It's great for our viewers who have waited patiently to see you live from London as well. And, and we wish you a, a safe journey back home as well. And we'll catch up with you again in the next few days, okay? Cheers, guys. Speak soon. Take care. Nigel, let's get into it. I mean, what a cracking game. I mean, England three, Germany three. Terrific game at the end of the day. First half, I missed. I was actually in studio but the second half I caught and I guess I didn't miss too much from the first half. What was your overall thoughts on the game, including the first half and then the terrific second half that we witnessed? I love the little dig at me, Ian. Oh, first half I missed it because I was in the studio. It wasn't a photo shoot this time, was it? You still got foundation on your face, geezer. Anyway. I can't blame. I, I can't think... blame GQ for calling me into the studio. Sorry about that. Yeah, anyway, whatever, mate. Um, you didn't really miss too much in the first half. Again, I think like I just said to James there, mate, 
first half for me was uh, Germany dominated possession. England, to me, set up like a team that was saying, we're not going to lose this game. Classic England, set up very tight, very narrow, hard to break down, willing to play that counter-attacking football, given a chance to Raheem Sterling, should have been more clinical for the player that he is. Germany possession a lot, too static in the final third. Movement was just non-existent. Timo Werner is the only one that kind of really runs in behind. I think if you think from a tactical point of view, Ian, now, I think the game is changing so much now that every team needs that threat in behind. If you've got that threat in that behind, that has to be part of your game plan for the 90 minutes. You have to mix up your game and mix up how you're playing. Germany, very static, which is quite worrying. And to bring on Timo Werner to try and change the game, which was a positive thing to do in the sense in the in the second half. And then England, obviously, were forced their hand when they went a goal behind to make some positive changes. For me, England need to have that kind of positive mindset if they're going to go all the way to win this World Cup. I understand yeah. some games you have to be a bit more, um, how do I say, defensively minded, but still you have to show that front-footedness, that willingness, that bit of edge about you to really wanting to get forward and score goals. We didn't see that in the first half. Uh, Jude Bellingham was absolutely sensational. Man of the match for sure. And I know people are talking about him going to Liverpool. It'll be interesting to see what some of the fans think, Ian, because for me, I've heard there's interest from Real Madrid and I can see him wanting to go to Real Madrid. You look at the current situation at Liverpool, I'm not saying it's going to be like this forever, but when you look at what Real Madrid are building there, how many years long left has Modric got? When you can see Bellingham filling in that Modric kind of role with such a young team that they've got and a young sensation they're building there, long-term playing Champions League football, winning titles, winning things in football, Real Madrid for me will be the best move for that young man. I just don't think it will be as good as move to go to Liverpool. But I'll be interested to see what fans think. But mm-hmm. again, overall, you still would say you are worried with England. We discussed it. I mean, Harry Maguire was at fault for two of England's goals that they conceded. And again, it goes with not getting game time. You know, and then this is the last preparation before the World Cup. He is not going to play in that Manchester United team. Ten Hag is not going to force to play Harry Maguire to do England a favour. If he doesn't feel he's good enough to play, unless there's some serious injuries, he's not going to play in that Manchester United team. So how are you going to deal with that situation? Coming to a World Cup, maybe if Maguire might get five or six games, you're lucky, and you've got a World Cup to go into. It goes to Tomore playing at AC Milan, not getting another opportunity, which is a bit of an opener. Chris Smalling still playing at Roma, not getting an opportunity. So there's still a lot of questions to ask in this England side. I got a lot of questions for you, Nigel Rio Coker, live here on Keiko Lazzo. It's Ian Joy. Uh, we got a great comment right in there from Tom Markin, and he also agrees that Bellingham was man of the match. Shaw did well, considering he's not been playing well. Um, let's touch upon Jude Bellingham real quickly. You, you'd mentioned it. I had actually had a great conversation with Fabrizio Romano on the show this morning live. Uh, make sure you go back and, and check that one out on YouTube. And he, he touched upon the fact that Bellingham potentially to Premier League would be a favourable move because he is English and obviously the price tag will be tremendously high. So there's not many that can afford him. But he also mentioned exactly what you had said right there as well, Nigel, that the La Liga interest is starting to really heat up. And it's understandably so with that midfield at Real Madrid getting older, as you touched upon. But what is it specifically about his game that you admire. We all see the Jude Bellingham that plays at Dortmund with the passion, with the heart. He did the same for Birmingham City, by the way. This kid just loves to play football. What is it, being an ex-professional yourself, maybe playing alongside him or watching his game that you see that makes him different from everybody else? He he can do it all. 
He reminds me of a box-to-box midfielder from what we had to do in our generation. You had to be able to do it everything. Kind of a bit of that kind of Steven Gerrard, Michael Essien. He's comfortable to drop in the hole and get the ball off the back four. Comfortable with people being around him. He doesn't mind players being tight on him and he can get the ball under pressure. And that is one of the real gems you look for when you look for young players. Because when you watch their movement on the pitch, getting the ball in tight areas with players around them without having that nervousness and that fear of giving the ball away, that is what makes them an outliner. Comfortable to do that. Comfortable to control the flow and the pace of the game in the midfield area. Knowing when to play fast, knowing when to slow the tempo of the game down. That's another great maturity that comes with more experience and more games you play. He's showing that already. And also has that willingness to drive and get forward and get goals. That that fearlessness to get goals and get in the box, get shots off. That is what I see in him. He is the full package. And for me, like you said, you look at Modric getting old, um, Tony Klaus at Real Madrid as well, getting older as well. He's the Mm -hmm. perfect guy to go in there, to go next to Omreli Chouameni. Yeah, I'm with you. But real quickly, I only need to have one word answer here. How much is he worth? I mean, what would be the price tag for a player like him? Oh, modern day football. Now you're looking, he's going to be anything from that 80 to 100 million range. Uh, Fabrizio Romano mentioned today that it would be in the mid 100 millions when coming to Jude Bellingham and I wouldn't be pa- I wouldn't put it past them because no. if you consider what has been sold in the Bundesliga he would probably be the most expensive player ever to be sold from the Bundesliga it's it's pretty awesome to hear you pronouncing the names correctly as well but let's move on to a name <laughs> that you don't have struggles with pronouncing that's Gareth Southgate listen th- there's going to be criticism from the media no doubt about it from the English fans in general and they have their right If you want to share your frustration, please do so here in our comments as well. Join in the conversation with Nigel Rio Coker. But I want to know your opinion on the the substitutions that he made. I think he did something really right there with Mount and Saka coming on and and absolutely making a difference in that game and getting England that lead. He definitely did. But I'd like to make a funny joke first, though. And you know we love to have a little bit of fun with this. How about Chelsea players scoring some stunning goals apart from scoring stunning goals for Chelsea itself. How funny is that? What a goal. <laughs> Some great Any goals. Chelsea fans, free, feel free to put a little dig in there. No, um, but the sad thing about that for me, Ian, is the fact of it wasn't Gareth Southgate kind of being proactive. It was being reactive to going down that you had to show real um, positive intent. My thing is, why not deliver that message from the England to the England boys from the start? Like, we need to mm-hmm. get rid of this fear of, oh, we're playing Germany, we're playing... This. No, go out there and play. I think with English fans and English um, football, they would appreciate the guys just really trying, playing on that front foot, trying to win games and, you know, being adventurous and just playing attacking, free-flowing football because we have the players to do so. This yeah. is the best generation we've had with free-flowing, quality attacking players. We can't say we've had it in previous generations. Previous generations, we might have one or two or three players, but now we've got so much, an abundance of talent. My thing is, the system isn't bad. The system works. What Gareth, I think, would have to do is accept the criticism that comes with it, with the whole Hiram Maguire situation and playing certain players. I think there's certain personnel that has to be changed. And I think with the opponents, who you're playing against, what type of game you're predicting it to be, that's when the real intelligence of football management comes into place in picking the personnel. I don't think any England player should be comfortable or feel comfortable that their place in the team is secure. I'm a big Raheem Sterling fan, 
But I feel that there's certain games you should play Raheem Sterling for and there's certain games you might not start him. And it kind of keeps players on that edge where everyone is competing and feeling that they have to earn the right to get into that England squad. Mm-hmm. Nigel, we've got a question from one of our viewers out there. And we want your questions to keep on being fired into us, please. Uh, Natalie, she is asking, would you bring Trent to the World Cup? And we'd had this discussion in our group chat ahead of the show. Trent Alexander-Arnold is an absolute luxury going forward. There's no doubt about it. He's absolutely terrific. But would you take him to a World Cup because of the reasons that guest Gareth Southgate left him out of the squad today? Yes, I would. I would take him to the World Cup. I personally would take Trent. I'm a big Trent Alexander-Arnold fan. And I think that when people have this argument, for me, it's kind of, um, it's funny in a way. Because we look at some of the top fullbacks that have played the game. You look at like Roberto Carlos and some of the greats before. They were fantastic going forward. But defensively, we knew they were a liability. And in Liverpool's system, Jurgen Klopp knows that. And that's how it works. Trent gets forward. You've got Henderson or um, Fabinho who can cover into that space. And then mm-hmm. on an on-form, Virgil van Dijk is the one that normally sweeps up the mess anyway. It's a system that works with the players around him. I think personally, Trent Alexander-Arnold has great vision, great passing range, and has the ability to play in that midfield role. You wouldn't trust him so much with the responsibility of defending, but you put him in there. But you have a luxury of having Trent, Trippier, um, uh, Carl Walker, You've got so many top-class right fullbacks there. You can play Trent higher James. up the pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James as well. I've got Reese James as well. You could play Trent higher up the pitch. You can play him in that mm-hmm. inside midfield area. And again, depending mm-hmm. on your opponents, if you want good delivery from out wide into the box, Trent Alexander's ability to whip a ball in and you've got Harry Kane as a target man and other players coming in at the edge of the box to make the box, Bellingham coming in. It's a recipe to be successful tactically, mm-hmm. depending on your opponents. But for me, I think the ability he possesses to get forward and put balls into the box and in that attacking third is too high a quality to not take him to the World Cup. I'm with you, especially when you can take so many numbers to a World Cup in that squad, which is extended this year. It's outstanding to see his talent and his immense ability on a dead ball situation that so few people in the world absolutely have. In my opinion, best right back in the world. And it's interesting to see him obviously being left out by Gareth Southgate. But it's, I guess if you go back to it, Nigel, and it's a great question from Natalie Cross right there, similar to like a Paul Scholes situation, one of the best midfielders ever to play the game, but couldn't really find that role in an England squad when it came to big tournaments, right? So it's a similar situation, I guess, when you have that luxury, like a right yeah. fullback right there, you know? Um, let's touch upon it again. England three, Germany three. Ilkay Gundogan with the opening goal. Uh, Kai Havertz uh, making it two nil. As uh, Nigel just touched Look at upon. Look a smile on your face when you say Kai Havertz. Look at you smiling. Oh wait, sorry, you got your German passport with you this time, right? Our producer let me, just let me know you've got your German passport on the table, so it's not the USA. Let me one. just tell you, you are desk. lucky. I did not wear my leader hosing onto the show today. Luke Shaw pulled one back. Here's a statistic that I found out from Luke Shaw. He scored more goals at Wembley Stadium than he has at Old Trafford in his career. Uh, that one pulled one back for England. And then Mason Mount, the substitutes, they really turned on. Lovely bit of skill from Saka. Mason Mount getting the finish. And then Harry Kane is just the second player in history to score in four consecutive appearances against Germany after Hungary's Imner Schloster, who scored in four games between 1909 and 1912, around about the time that Nigel was born. And then, of course, Kai Havertz got the goal 
which was a goalkeeping error. And now I have to touch upon that one to make it 3-3. I mentioned it to James Bench right there about the atmosphere inside the stadium. But from your opinion, Nigel, you've been in that situation before where, you know, goalkeepers make mistakes. You, you've, you've gone behind, your team's not played well, but then you fought so hard to either get level or then take the lead. And then all of a sudden a goalkeeping error brings you back down. That's not good for England, especially when you're preparing for big competition. That is not something that you can afford to do when it comes to a World Cup. Is that a doubt right there, the goalkeeper position now after a performance like that and a mistake like that from Pope? I wouldn't say it's a doubt. Nick Pope's a good goalkeeper. I think it was an opportunity missed by Nick Pope. You know, when you look at the other goalkeepers, he's comp competing against Ramsdale. Um, I think for me that it was an opportunity missed by him. And it's funny that Ian's saying that because Ian knows... England have a history of uh, goalkeepers making calamity areas at big, big vital moments. So that's why Ian's yes. loving that question. But um, I think it is an opportunity miss for Nick Pope. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think when you look at that question, Ian, though, you could even criticise Germany in the fact of being 2-0 up, not showing great maturity in being able to see that game out, slowing the tempo down, controlling the game a lot more, and, and flowing attempt because that's Germany again. Germany are well-oiled machine. Top players, good experience, good good experience and mix of youngsters coming through. You'd expect Germany, a nation like that, to control the tempo of a game being 2-0 up. But the way to continue how they did and to end up 3-3, it's a bit of a question mark over Germany, like you've always said. And I'm not going to say the B word because uh, that kind of gets you even more rowdy of one certain team in Germany. But again, on the other hand, you look when England got the equaliser, Gareth Southgate, Point no, when England took the lead, Gareth Southgate was pointing to his head, his players think, think. And again, England need to show greater maturity. You've gone three, two up, control the game, control the tempo, slow it down, do all the right things. And again, to let it finish three, three again leaves question marks over, over England. So they're, they're both teams that are talented with great mm -hmm. players, good squad, tremendous amount of talent, but there's still question marks over both those teams in just that performance alone, I feel. There's no doubt that the pressure will be on uh, Hansi Flick as well with the German media. I mean, the pressure coming into this game, having his first loss as a German coach against Hungary, um, but then all of a sudden having uh, this uh, disappointment against England. We've got another one from Tom. He said, neither side saw the game out as bad as each other. Listen, at the end of Very the day, 3-3. 3-3 is a result that both teams will learn from. 3-3 is a result that you'd say everybody um, can possibly take some positives from this game. England scoring goals, for example. Germany will have a lot to learn from conceding so many goals. Um, but for me, it was uh, Germany, an opportunity for them to go and win this game. And then all of a sudden, allowing England to have the lead. England should never have thrown it away. So there's a lot for Germany to take from this game and try to learn, try to improve. And I can only imagine, Nigel, we'll see both of these teams improve and do better when it comes to World Cup competition. Let's move to the other game in the group. Hungary defeated by Italy by two goals to nil. Raspadori once again on the score sheet. He has been in terrific form. He has now upped his goal tally. Four goals in his last five games for club and country. His fifth national team goal. DeMarco rounded things off. His first competitive goal in 2022. Listen, it's a big win for Italy. Hungary had their opportunity to top the group, but you have to say well done to Italy. They managed to get the job done. They topped the group in the end. They did. It's just honestly a shame, Ian, that Italy are not going to be in this World Cup because the Italy we're seeing now is the Italy of old. It's the great foundation of Italy, the great determination. And we've said it before, they've got that kind of gladiator kind of feeling about them. Everyone's winning their personal duels. There's a great togetherness, uh, willingness to get forward, scoring goals. Raspadori, again, as you said, has been sensational for the oh, yeah. national team and also domestically for Napoli. 
So it's just a shame because I think that this Italy team that we're seeing and the performances they're putting in now would be a real challenge for anyone in the World Cup stage because there's an, I just see an extra bit of grit and determination. And I don't know whether it's because they're not going to the World Cup that there's a point to prove now that there's a bit of pride at stake to show that, you know, Italy are still a nation to take seriously. But with, with what we're seeing right now, it's just honestly a shame that they didn't make it to this World Cup. I'm with you. And of course, we have um, a, a lot of Italian fans around our CBS family. And it's so, so important to see an Italian side compete because of the passion that the, the fans bring to a major competition. And I love, um, of course, a lot of the Italian players. It's been great covering them across Paramount Plus as well. So, yeah, big result right there for Italy. They topped the group. And uh, I've just got a little statistic before we do head to break. Roberto Mancini won his 34th game as Italy manager, reaching Arrigo Sacchi as manager with the third most games won with Azzurri. So congratulations to Roberto Mancini. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll touch upon the rest of the crazy results from the latest round of European internationals, including an absolute shocker for France. Oh, welcome back into Kiko Lazzo. It's Ian Joy alongside my very good friend and co-host Nigel Rio-Coker. We just touched upon England's draw with Germany 3-3, a terrific second half we witnessed. But yesterday, Nigel, we witnessed a bit of a shocker. It was Denmark against France. France obviously going down by two goals to nil. Kasper Dahlberg with his 11th Danish goal all time and Andres Skov Olsen making it 2-0. Um, I don't know if you caught much of the game, but the result in itself for France is not a good look, but a terrific look for Denmark. Well, it's quite funny. I think before we even talk about France, let's give credit to Denmark because we spoke about Denmark, how they've got players playing all over the place in different leagues, great experience. And again, the only, not criticism, the only worry you have for Denmark is the over-reliance on Christian Eriksen, but he's been on fantastic form. He's been Manchester United's best midfielder and he showed why he's one of the top players in the world yesterday in that game. He was truly terrific. Give Christian Eriksen time and space in that middle of that midfield and you have willing runners, players making to get in behind, he will find them. And he will find them with a very, very dangerous penetrating pass. It was fantastic. I think for me, France, when I look at that France performance scene, and we were talking the, in the group as the game was going on, it yep. comes back to what we discussed about France. France's worst enemy is the French players themselves. They had that arrogance yesterday. And it wasn't confidence that's borderline arrogance it was complete arrogance I feel they felt they were just going to turn up there and Denmark were going to roll over because they've got so many top players they weren't playing as a team they weren't working hard enough as a team to do the basic foundation stuff that's needed doubling up winning the ball back there was an arrogance of you're there I'm there it's more individual based and this is what starts I don't know if you agree with me but it's a problem you start when the story came out about the French team having to change things around for Mbappe mm -hmm because he didn't feel comfortable because of his image. In my opinion, I feel that's too much. I understand that these players now are brands and stuff, but when, you re when you're representing your national team, it's about your national team. This isn't about your image. You're not bigger than the country of France. And I feel that when they do that, players might be in the dressing room, might not say anything, but believe me, in dressing rooms before, players look at that with one eye open, like, okay, so he can do that. Mbappe didn't use his pace to try and run in behind, come in deep too much, you're one of the fastest players with a football in world football. Use the pace to go in behind. You've got Griezmann and all these other talented players who can find that pass, but you want to come short and link up play for what? Get in behind, score goals, let people know why your name is Mbappe. And that's the thing. I think it's the arrogance of France that's going to be their big downfall. But Denmark, 
definitely got to keep an eye on Denmark because they really do look good. Well-oiled machine, great togetherness, great ability, and a real good team. Some harsh words from Nigel Rio Cooker into the direction of France, and I agree with you. The yesterday's performance was nowhere near good enough from the French, um, and especially when you're playing against a team that will be in the same group as you at the World Cup. We'll look forward to that match, uh, the replay, again when it comes down to November and the World Cup is underway. That's match day two, I believe. Those two go head-to-head. Ooh, Rafa. Rafa. Rafa's coming with Aragon or not. France will beat Denmark at the World Cup. So I think you would probably agree with that one as well, Nigel. This was a war warm-up game, um, but we didn't see the best France, so. we did see a good uh, Ian, Denmark side. You think Ian, so? You're a product of your environment. Like, I've played against France a lot and played with French players. There's a bit of arrogance that goes there. There's this whole <laughs> thing that there's competition to be the head guy in charge. You don't see, listen, for the ability that France have and possess, you don't see the togetherness in, in the France team as you do when you're watching Brazil. When they have super talented players, I'm talking raw talent, but there's a great unity and togetherness with the Brazilian players than you ever see in a French dressing room. There's the egos, the battles to be the head guy in charge or the gangster in charge. And it is just so easy. Like we've seen it before when they've been at World Cups and players are going on a strike and revolting and stuff like that. I've played with a lot of French players. I've been to France. I know what the mentality is like. You're a product of your environment. There's, there's There's a line of being confident to being a little bit arrogant, but the French players are beyond arrogant. Nigel, you have certainly uh, struck a chord right here because Lucky Singh agrees with you. You know, it's one of these things. Keep the comments coming, everybody. You're watching Ian Joy and Nigel Rio. Tell the friends too. You've got to tell them. Tell their (laughs) friends. You want to get a good footballing discussion with valid points where it's a discussion? Tell your friends. This is where it's at. I think it's the honest discussion, and that's what I appreciate from you the most, Nigel, is honest discussion, telling it exactly how you feel, and having the platform to, for you to be able to share exactly how you feel, and not have to worry about you know media backlash or social media backlash. You, you say it as it is, and that's the way it should be. I do the same thing. I, I actually love to be as close to that red line as possible. But we make some valid points here, and I think that the freedom and this opportunity to grow the show with our viewers is is pretty special. Um, France, disappointment in the group. They uh, ended up with five points from six games. Denmark, they needed Croatia to lose, which did not happen. Croatia got a massive win against Austria. Your man, once again, on the score sheet, Luka Modric, 154 games for Croatia, 24 goals. I mean, these are insane numbers. Nigel, he made his debut back in 2006. Another convincing victory from Croatia, but he seems to be the man who's pulling the strings. Dejan Lovren was also on the score sheet, the 33-year-old, but experience with a mix of great young players coming through for Croatia. I don't care what anyone says. This is a dangerous team when it comes to the World Cup, Croatia. Yeah, 100%. I think when you look at Modric as well, you look at the evolution of players, Ian, and you think Modric's kind of taking that same role as Lionel Messi is when with Argentina. You know, watch Argentina play Honduras the other day. People are not going to see the Messi of old running past four or five players and beating them. No, this is a Messi now that's showing that kind of Pirlo kind of role of, I'm going to facilitate. You make the runs, I'm going to find you because I have the ability to find you. It's the exact same thing with Modric. He doesn't have to run and drift past people as we see him picks the right spots, picks the right moments, and he has the ability to do that killer pass. And that is what he's doing. Good managers, good coaches see that. The way to elevate that to a next level is surrounding these players with enthusiastic, energetic young players, and you let them know you make that run. If that space is in there, make that run. Don't worry about the ball. It's going to find you. Because if you don't make that run, you're not going to have an opportunity to score a goal because that is the quality 
and that's how much belief they put in the likes of the evolution of Messi's style of play, Modric's style of play, and uh, some of these top players. That's what you're going to get nowadays. Another big-time performance that we witnessed right there from Croatia, running out by three goals to one. Winners, Luka Modric on the score sheet. So was Marko Livaya and Dejan Lovren. Incredible to see Croatia have the success ahead of another major competition. Watch out for them. I think they could be dangerous. I love to get a Croatian jersey because it's like the one jersey that gets released that I enjoy wearing when I'm out for my runs and whatever. Uh, let's touch upon another team before we get out of here in the Netherlands who are so successful right now. Uh, since their appointment of Van Hal or reappointment of Van Hal. They have gone 15 games undefeated. They have won 11. They've drawn four. They've scored 41 goals, Nigel, in that time. Virgil van Dijk was on the score sheet as they beat Belgium by a goal to nil. That was his sixth national team goal. They're on form right now, the Netherlands. Is that a team that maybe we should all be talking about a bit more? Listen, I'm, I'm sure they're very happy that we're not talking about them because Louis van Gaal, fantastic manager, great reputation. What I love about van Gaal is Ian, and you mentioned it the other day, he's bringing in past players in the fold. Mm -hmm. When you're a youngster coming through that national team right now and you're playing at that national level and you're seeing the likes of Edgar Davids and some of these players involved in the national team, you're thinking back in the day of total football of Ajax when the Dutch players were dominating European football at AC Milan, Real Madrid, the top clubs in the world dominating world football. It was a lot of the Dutch players. And coming into that fold again, there's nothing that any of this young generation can say they're going through that those players haven't been through experience. So I think what he's done in bringing those players in has been absolutely tremendous. As you said, it 15 games undefeated. Right now, I think that because they're not getting the media attention, it suits them perfectly. They could be the dark horses. They can continue to work under the radar, get the results. No one's talking about Netherlands. Everyone's talking about Brazil, Argentina, um, Germany, France, England, no one's talking about the Netherlands. And they're very happy about that. They're going to go, uh, continue to do the work, continue to get better, continue to improve. They've got a great, great squad of players again, as many of these teams do. But the difference yeah. with Netherlands is they're getting the job done. That's the difference. Yeah. You haven't really questioned Holland and their performance and getting the result in a very, very long time since Luis van Gaal's taken over. It's been very convincing, very well organised, very well drilled and they're getting results. I think we're seeing the explosives being thrown by Louis van Gaal when it comes to his press conference. His press conference the other day there was sensational, talking about Qatar and building these stadiums, uh, human rights. I mean, it was sensational to hear these words from such a great man, uh, terrific experience, obviously, and no one is ever going to question him. So watch out for the explosives, not only on the pitch from the Dutch when it comes to World Cup competition. I think they're going to be fun to watch. Real quickly, before we go, Wales, they lost again to Poland. Um, Karol Spiderski on the score what's happening with Wales I mean they're in the group with England and the USA and Iran but they can't seem to get a win now under the new boss Rob Page I don't think I think for me Wales are just really preparing for the World Cup honestly I don't think any of these results matter I think they're getting the last bit of preparations going and game time there's a bit of worry about Gareth Bale in the game time obviously he's getting over in LA but I think for Wales all they're doing is getting ready for the World Cup I think that the fans know that. The fans are aware with somebody twinkling in the team and the players available because some of these players who would start in that starting 11 necessarily are not getting first-team football. And that is the most important team that they need to get before this World Cup. But I feel that the expectations is there, but not there quite as much as the likes of England and Germany to really do something in this World Cup. So there's a greater pressure. 
there's greater scrutiny in team selection and results, every result. But for Wells, I think the fans very, are very aware of it's a building process. Let's just get the twinkling ready for the World Cup. And what people need to understand as well, Ian, we've got to put this in before we end today. Mm-hmm. When you get into tournament football, the mentality as a player changes and you know it yourself. You know when you've played for certain teams. You might have been playing, for instance, um, Freisberg. And then the next week after, you're playing Bayern Munich away. You know as a player that there's a level that comes to yourself that's like, okay, this is Bayern Munich. All of a sudden, your energy levels goes to another level. Your competitiveness goes to another level. That's what people have to understand once this World Cup starts. What we're seeing now isn't the full overall picture. We can talk, we can have our opinion as much as we want. But once the World Cup starts, it's another kettle of fish because you're in that you're in that zone, you're in that environment, you're in that bubble. The competitiveness and the games take another meaning and level because once that atmosphere kicks in and that first whistle goes, players are going to raise and change and it's just going to be fascinating to watch. And it's just to let people know that, you know, sometimes people are getting carried away with results and what they're seeing and how teams are performing. There's a difference for players when they get into that environment of tournament football. And I'm sure you're aware of it. It's something that I've experienced. And I know when in our younger days, qualifying for European championships with England and stuff like that, once you get into that environment, there's another energy and adrenaline rush that you really can't put into words. Nigel, you clearly don't know me well because whether it was red versus blue in training or it was in the Olympics or whether it was in a World Cup qualification, I didn't care. I went into it with 110%. I was ready to go. I was one of those strange ones, but you're absolutely right. When it comes to big competition, some teams turn up. And I think this UEFA Nations League has been very confusing for a lot of the nations who we expect to do well in the World Cup and trying to get their teams right. And I will say this, and this is probably our final thought before we get out of here. When you see these UEFA Nations League games, I find it frustrating because let's take England, for example. They've got the United States in their group. They've got Wales in their group. And then they've got Iran in their group. The Nations League games are frustrating because England can't really prepare. They're not playing against opposition similar to the USA. They're not playing against opposition similar to Iran so that they can get ready for those games. That style of play, that style of football from a different continent, from a different region in the world. So a little bit of frustration from me when it comes to UEFA Nations League. I actually found it incredibly frustrating. Unless I was watching Scotland beat Ireland at the weekend, I found it incredibly frustrating watching the UEFA Nations League. And I'm not sure if you share the same thoughts as me. I'll have to disagree with you, Ian. I honestly think it's not that bad. I think it's making it a lot more competitive because I've gone from the days where England and all these nations would organise friendly games and it would just be so meaningless. Like, you couldn't really gauge. You want to make it as competitive as possible. And I think with what we're seeing of the countries that are playing against each other, there's a greater competitive element to it than meaningless friendlies that we've seen, where they can organise a friendly against whoever they want and it's, you still don't really get too much out of it because it depends on how competitive that nation is that you're playing against. But when you're playing against some of these top teams in Europe, there's already history there. There's history there from before we started to follow football and it's about national pride. Like we spoke about this game today, this is England versus Germany. Tremendous history. Neither team wants to lose that game. Whoever loses that game is going to get crucified by their national press when they get back home. So that, that's what makes it so competitive when you look at the UEFA um, Nations League, I think it's actually good. I think maybe they can find a way to open a window to organise friendly specific to maybe what the footballing 
calendar might hold. So I'm not too bad again. And before we go, I would like to say, and well yeah. done to Scotland. Well Thanks. done. We didn't talk about it. We overlooked it. But well done to Scotland. Get your kilts up because you beat the Irish. And yeah. our producer, Des, is drowning his sorrows with a couple of pints of Guinness. But well He's already gone. Scotland. He didn't want to Nobody's talk listened. about it. He didn't want to talk about it. And he put Scotland were lucky. Yes. Love that, Des. Good one. Scotland were lucky. All right. Well, good luck to Scotland tomorrow against Ukraine as they battle out for top of the table. Unfortunately, the Irish, no chance now of competing for the top of the table. But much love to our producer, Des, who was uh, put painfully through that game in our group chat as well. Are they relegated, Ian? (laughs) Not yet. Armenia were relegated, Ireland third in the table. Uh, Nigel, love you, man. Thank you so much, as always, for connecting with us after England's draw with Germany 3-3 today from Wembley Stadium. I saw that smile on your face. I was actually just thinking about you when England went 3-2 up, and I thought, oh my word we're not going to hear the end of it but I appreciate you appreciate your honesty and everything you're doing with us as we continue to grow this channel thanks to everybody else out there for listening in to Keiko Lazzo please make sure you take a minute to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform we're available on Apple Podcasts Spotify Stitcher and anywhere else you listen to your podcast we are also available on video yes so subscribe to us on YouTube and visit YouTube Nigel Rio Coker, Ian Joy, check it out. We'll see you tomorrow for Kegelazzo.